podcast is intended to get the real insider news from behind the scenes by the people who work. <laughs> who are they kidding? Brandon Hamill's a newbie to the production industry, and his uncle Jeff Hamill is an old-timer who is known as the Big Idea Guy. Warning, no guarantee that the hosts are likable, or for that matter, knowledgeable. I'm Brandon Hamill. And I'm Jeff Hamill. On this episode of Real Insider News, we talk about some recent losses in our industry. Also, how Nolan feels about Tenet's reception, what Disney and Warner Brothers are doing to stay afloat, and some insights about the industry in New England. Then we're going to interrogate our own oldie about the differences between working in TV and film and working with live events. So stay tuned. Today's news segment is brought to you by ATM Services of Massachusetts, providing your customers access to cash that will increase impulse spending and cash purchases. Save your business from those hefty credit card fees with your own ATM. For more information, call or text Nick at 978-877-9801 or email nick.atmservices at gmail.com. Hey, Brandon, why don't you give us some news? First, we're going to start off with news that really hit me hard. Sir Sean Connery, who has been acting for over 60 years, having his first major motion picture appearance in the 1957 gangster movie, No Roads Back, has sadly passed at the age of 90. He won an Oscar back in 1988 for his role in The Untouchables, and of course played James Bond in seven of some of the most famous James Bond films, and has had a legendary career ever since. I mean, Sean Connery is essentially a household name at this point. Is a, I would say is a household name. I mean, I think Sean Connery really set the tone for Bond movies. I haven't seen the films prior to uh, Sean Connery, but I, from what I understand, he was pretty much the trendsetter and kind of was one of the first people to really establish what the leading man in an action blockbuster should be like, how he should act, how cool they should be and in what way. And uh, ever since then, I mean, his his effect has been apparent throughout all sorts of rogues and blockbuster films, roguish characters like James Bond himself. Yeah, I mean, there was so many others. Dr. No, Honor Majesty's Secret, Thunderball, From Russia With Love, Octopussy, A View to a Kill, all great Bond films. But he was also in films like the, Red, the Hunt for Red October, which is a bit of like a cult classic. And he was also Indiana Jones' father in The Last Crusade, the third Indiana Jones movie, and so many more. I mean, Sean Connery has had his face all over the industry. It's a shame that he had to pass, but 90 is a long life. And after such an incredible career, and it's not, not everyone gets to act for over 60 years. That is truly impeccable. I suppose at the end of the day, we want to say thank you, Sean Connery, for brightening up so many movies, bringing so many characters to life on screen, and I'm sure that all of his fans feel the same way. Another sad passing would be Alex Trebek. Now, whether you're a Jeopardy fan or not, um, you know who Alex Trebek was. And from what I understand, I didn't know him personally, but from all the media reports over the years, uh, you know, he was a great guy. What you saw on TV is pretty much what you got. Now, I'm sure that wasn't 100% of the time, but I'd like to think it was 80. 
I I have not I have not watched uh, many game shows. Wasn't really part of my childhood, but uh, learning that he has been hosting Jeopardy since 1984 is incredible. I had no idea he was still hosting. I mean, man, what a force. 37 years on the game show. And he truly was the face of Jeopardy. And even I, who doesn't watch many game shows, knows of Jeopardy. I mean, it, it might be the most famous game show, at least American game show. Yeah, I mean, I don't really like any games, board games, game shows, but I certainly know who Alex Trebek <laughs> is. Now, Merv Griffin is the one that hired him originally. Um, you know, Merv went on from talk show fame and to uh, buying up all kinds of TV shows, most of them being game shows. I guess he got his start and he just stuck. He stuck. And unfortunately, you know, like uh, like Sean Connery and... and Everybody someday. He passed away. Uh, 80 seems a bit young in today's standards, uh, but not a bad run. Uh, I, I guess. And sadly, he did pass from pancreatic cancer, which is not the most peaceful way to go. No, I guess the, the trouble with pancreatic cancer is by the time you get it detected or, or diagnosed, it's usually too late. In his case, I think it was in stage four. So by then, it's. You pretty much uh, have signed your death certificate. From what I understand, Sony Pictures, the company that owns Jeopardy, is unsure of who his successor will be. And his last day in studio was actually October 29th of this year. And his episodes of this season will be continuing to air until, I believe, the end of December. Uh, but they have not made a statement about who will replace him if Jeopardy will keep going at all, which I'm assuming it will. Uh, but from all of the Jeopardy fans out there and anyone who has just watched TV in their lives in the past 37 years, we want to thank Alex, Alex Trebek for his years of dedication to one of America's most popular game shows. Absolutely. I, ha I do have one more mention for a bit of sad local news. Boston Celtics legendary player, coach, and broadcaster Tommy Heisen dies at age 86. Now, I can't say that I knew Tommy. I mean, I didn't hang out with Tommy, but I spent many years working with the Celtics on Celtics Media Day for NBC Sports Boston, and Tommy was obviously a large part of that. He and Mike, Tommy and Mike, Mike and Tommy, um, you know, were the team, and Tommy was always willing to play along with whatever theme was going on for that year's media day. He was always willing to do as many takes as it, you know, it was necessary, whether it be a lighting, you know, fix or uh, needed another one for the camera or whatever the case may be. Um, and you could just see that everybody in the studio, players, Coaches over the years, uh, any any member, anybody that had anything to do with the Celtics, certainly respected them. So I think the local fans are going to miss hearing Tommy uh, razz the refs. <laughs> yeah, I think some people, and it's, uh, film and TV production can be a bit of a a bit of a jarring experience for some people, but some people just really get it from step the second they step into the studio so 
it seems like he was one of those people that just understood the trials and tribulations of what it was like to work on Celtics Media Day and didn't want to give you guys a hard well, time. Well, I think he also realized, like so many of us, hopefully in television, not all, we're not saving lives. Uh, but he, we're saving, <laughs> we're saving asses, asses. Our own. But he had a real passion for basketball and a real passion specifically for anybody wearing green. Now, if you'd listen to him over the years, you know, there'd be a player here and there that he might critique. But once they became a Celtic, he was honest. I mean, he didn't, he wasn't blowing smoke up their butts. He would be honest, um, but fair. And we're going to miss the Tommy points. And we want to say thank you to Tommy Heisen for his years of dedication with our local sports. Go Celtics! So, on less dire news, however, still affecting people's lives, we're going to talk about Tenet's box office again, as we've been kind of having a bead on it for the last couple months, and we're going to discuss a statement from the director, Christopher Nolan himself. So, the, the film had a $200 million budget, pretty standard for high-budget action movies these days, and only raked in about $350 million. Now, while $350 million isn't anything to scoff at, it's not necessarily the it's not necessarily the uh, profit margins Warner Brothers was looking for. And of course, everyone was expecting that with the harsh terrain that it was released into, seeing that theaters are hanging on by a thread. Now, Christopher Nolan is a bit of a traditionalist. Most people who are familiar with him understand that. He only shoots on film for example, and he's a big fan of the exhibition aspect of films, i.e. movie theaters. So Nolan was saying that people are taking the wrong things away from Tenet's release, because he's saying that everyone's focusing on the negatives, whereas Tenet didn't do well. However, he's arguing that the fact that it did do well in some areas, like certain parts of America, for example, is showing that we should be trying to release films into theaters, and in his words, have theaters adapt. Because no one is saying that movie going at this point in our society is a part of culture, much like restaurants, and that we need to adapt to save them rather than leave them behind like we are in the pandemic. Now, I know many people don't want to go to movie theaters, and I'm not telling anyone to, but I think it's an interesting point that he brings up because movie theaters have been seemingly left in the dust with how everything has been going, and reasonably so since we're currently prioritizing keeping everyone alive. Now, I don't think there'll ever be a time in Reese in 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 the current in the near future where we won't have movie theaters. I think if even all of our huge movie theater corporations were to collapse, say tomorrow, from lack of revenue, I think that we would have a resurgence of new movie theaters coming from the distribution companies or any able-bodied, you know, people who are who are able to set up that enterprise because there's going to be a demand for it. Since I imagine many people, because a lot of people do go to the theaters, and I imagine a lot of people are missing it, and once they get the chance to do so again, will want to go out. But what really sinks is the small movie theaters, the independent movie theaters, the ones that show more difficult films to find in that sort of environment. I mean, those people are sadly being strangled for all, the, all their worth. And now, obviously, I don't have all the answers. I'm not sure how those theaters could adapt to a COVID environment, but it's just so uncertain. Nobody wants to go out and risk themselves like that, and who knows when a vaccine is going to be present. So, in other news, Disney has delayed two of its blockbuster films for later in this year indefinitely. So, they'll probably be coming around either in 2021 or 2022. Those two films are the 
follow-up to the 2017's Murder on the Orient Express, Death on the Nile, and the video game satire slash action thriller Free Guy starring Ryan Reynolds. Now, both of these films are being made under the old uh, 20th Century Fox banner, of course now owned by Disney, which is still strange to me. But they have now been scooted off into next year since Disney, I suppose, is taking away from the quote-unquote bad parts of Tenet and doesn't want to exhibit them in movie theaters and may not be satisfied with Mulan's release as much as they are claiming to be since they are clearly not going to release those films on streaming services alone. So while those films might not be the most hotly anticipated films of the year, it is still evidence that the winter resurgence of, of the corona pandemic is definitely hitting the industry. And speaking of hitting the industry, we got some sad news for our friends over at Warner Brothers or Warner Media. Recently, there has been a memo passed around that Warner Brothers is laying off many positions. According to the Wall Street Journal, they may be planning to cut costs by at least 20%. So I'm never happy to hear that people in the film and television production industry are losing jobs, but what else can Warner Brothers Media do at this time? It so sounds my condolences. Oh, sorry. It just sounds co- counterproductive because <clears throat> there's a there's there's a pent up demand for content. Uh, maybe it's the uh, the gap between the new content and when it's ready to air that is creating this uh, the bean counters to say, you know, in order to survive. This is what we need to do. I, I don't know. Um, but it definitely doesn't seem like the right time, again, when we need so much content. But there again, they don't say what what the positions are that are being cut. So it may not be directly involved with – I mean, they're probably not making a lot of their own movies right now, probably looking to buy content. So – I mean, Warner Media says that they're cutting at several le- levels of the company – and I'm sure it's a wide variety of positions, sadly. Uh, and I don't blame them for wanting to cut their costs. These are frightening times. Many str- companies are struggling. But, uh, yeah, it's never great to hear that people are losing their jobs, despite, I mean, not despite, uh, during, especially our current situation, which is not easy for anyone. So some big changes going on there. Apparently, ever since Warner Brothers has been acquired by AT&T in 2018, there has been continuing waves of cutoffs. So maybe AT&T has, has been trying to thin out Warner Brothers whenever they get a chance for their own reasons. Who knows? Well, the other part of that might be, and I haven't looked into this, so this is just speculation. Maybe they, AT&T also owns DirecTV. Yeah. So maybe subscription. And HBO. So maybe subscriptions or, you know, to DirecTV uh, are down. Maybe they're losing to the streaming services like most cable companies. So they're looking to stop the bleeding. Or perhaps they're cutting from Warner Brothers to focus on HBO and HBO Max, which is HBO's streaming service, because apparently HBO's Max has uh, acquired 38 million subscribers, and their projected subscriber base was only to be 36 million. So that's definitely exceeding, and I can see that there are a lot of new uh, content. There's a lot of new content going to HBO Max, so maybe that's going to be their focus. And another reason I think that is because Disney has some reorganization uh, reorganization news that is also pretty interesting in regards to their streaming content. 
So Peter Rice is the head of the newly rebranded Disney General Entertainment Content Division. And Peter Rice wrote an internal memo explaining how this branch has been split from the Disney Media and Entertainment Distribution Division that was previously both branches. So essentially, they took the distribution, the media and distri entertainment and distri distribution division and cut it in half because with Disney Plus, the content creation for the streaming services was originally part of that media and distribution division. However, they seem to be wanting to focus more specifically on creating content for the streaming service. So Disney has actually made a whole department specifically for making that content. So that could be the reason why Warner Brothers is cutting for the same reason that Disney is now reallocating some of its supplies to focus more on making new shows, since that's where all the money's being made with film and television right now. Um, I believe The Mandalorian's second season is doing well, and most people I know have added Disney Plus to their sort of pantheon of streaming services. So what do you think, Uncle? Do you think we're going to see more large film and television corporations really lean on their streaming sides even after the pandemic's over? Or do you think this is only going to be a temporary situation? Well, I think I think that's going to be short term. I, I don't know if that's going to be long term. The opportunity here for theaters and other non-streaming services would be to you know sort of pivot and find uh, lower cost ways of distribution for their packages or. Like in theaters, it's an opportunity to change the technology, perhaps, and sort of uh, maintain the same brand in that the experience, you know, doesn't change. But the infrastructure, you know, it's sort of like, uh, you know, everybody talks, this is a so sort of a sideline note, but I, th I think maybe that will make the point. So everybody talks about solar and wind power, which is great. But the problem is the infrastructure getting it distributed, you'd have to be all redone. And in a country this big, that's nearly impossible. So let me let me try to relate that to theaters. If you're a big theater chain, maybe the only way to be able to pivot and streamline everything is to shut everything down after you've developed or during the time you're developing a plan to streamline everything and change the infrastructure and get it back up. Now, we mentioned a few episodes ago about cloud-based movies for theaters now that would help with the timeline most likely um, just like it does with you at home when you want to you know stream a stream a show or movie you just log in and there it is so there's different options i think different opportunities uh i i certainly hope the ones that close especially the mom and pop find a way to come back you know it's like going to the local hardware store versus the big box store so there's definitely a different experience with the, with the smaller theaters. And, and I, I think it's an opportunity. It, it just depends on the will of the owners and the deep, you know, if they have deep enough pockets. As technology always is, streaming services are a double-edged sword. I mean, I'm not one to kind of preach a economic Darwinism here, but in a way, movie theaters are being edged out by current technology because streaming services are allowing distribution companies to completely skip the exhibition pay phase, all of the exhibition costs, and just release their content on their own. 
which is great and super convenient for those large corporations, but that just means that part of the latter, part of film culture, is being completely left out in the dust. And, you know, even if these theaters were to try to do some sort of streaming initiative, those big companies are just going to completely overhop them by making their own streaming services, and there's nothing they can really do about it. So, it's really unfortunate. Uh, I, I think without Corona, we wouldn't really be seeing an issue I, however, think that if Necrona never happened, companies would definitely be veering more towards streaming just because it's more efficient. Um, there's not as much of a hullabaloo about getting their film out. But it is it is saddening to see that theaters are being cut out of the uh, the pie, so to speak. Well, I, that, that's true. But, I, you know, you, you and I have had this conversation, uh, not necessarily on a podcast. Uh, maybe we, we touched on it before. But it's sort of like, you know, this industry went from film to video and then there was a time when you had prosumer versus uh, professional equipment. Um, now it's, you can do it on your iPhone. So if, if you follow the, the path, some of the things have gotten lost. Like the art of film is definitely a thing of the past. But some of the talent that you found along the way may have never been discovered if everybody had to do traditional film school and, you know, learn the trade and the art and, and get noticed. absolutely. So maybe it's the same thing, you know, with streaming becoming easier and easier, less expensive, perhaps. Uh, who knows? You know, Real Insider News could open a streaming service. I mean, you don't know, eventually or someday. So... It gets watered down in one respect, but then it also there's opportunity on the other side of the coin. So, you know, as one of my clients always say, there's cause and effect. That is that is a positive side to it. So, like I was saying with the double-edged sword, uh, the fact that with so much content, with such a high density of content, high saturation content sort of content creation sort of becomes democratized and now there's tons of jokes about like anything will be any any script's going to get picked up now because all of these streaming services are looking for shows and in one way that's bad and you know we'll see a lot of stuff that isn't necessarily that good but in another way that means that the more companies make more content the more people that are, that are going to be able to get their content out there which is, like I said, a double-edged sword. We're really, we've really yet to see the full effect of that and what that's like when everyone's able to make content. Uh, but that is one positive that you can take from the matter. The matter. Absolutely. So, from what I understand, you have some local news for us. Well, I do. So, so a little bit of local news for well, streaming services shooting projects in Massachusetts. Two of them start next week. There's a big Netflix movie, Don't Look Up. There's a tier one called Black Friday, and they both start Monday of next week. Julia, which started last March and then was shut down due to the pandemic, has been up and running for the last few months. Uh, sorry, the last few weeks, uh, and that finishes up on Tuesday. And Mother Android just finished and wrapped up. Kevin can go F himself, shoots until the end of the month, then comes back in January. So they're not even going to shoot straight through, um, you know, whether that's a talent thing or I, I'm not sure. Um, but when I mentioned that tier one called Black Friday, so there's different tiers of movie making. There's different budget ranges. A tier one is typically below six million. 
a tier two was six to ten million, and a tier three is ten to fourteen point two million. How they come up with a four point fourteen point two, I don't know. But technically, there's a tier zero, which is an ultra low budget film, uh, which is more of a you know a personal project for people than obviously money making. Um, one of the fitting stories that I'd like to talk about today being Veterans Day. It's sort of related. It's the story of Hedy Lamar. She was the Angelina Jolie of her day. And she was also an inventor. She was behind the advances in communications technology in the 1940s that led to today's Wi-Fi, GPS, and Bluetooth. Wow. So her idea was called frequency hopping. It was a way of jumping around on radio frequencies in order to avoid a third party jamming your signal. So she invented it in the 1940s to use as a secret wartime communication system. She got a patent for it in 1942 and then donated it to the U.S. military to help fight the Nazis. Now, as it turns out, the Navy didn't know what to do with it at the time, so they never used it during the Second World War. But it was after the Second World War that it emerged as a way of secretly communicating on all the gadgets that we use today. So heads up or, or, or uh, you know, recognition, although she didn't serve in the military. But I think it's fitting on Veterans Day to tip your hat, your cap, your beer, whatever else. Not only to the <laughs> veterans that have, uh, have and still continue to support and, and keep our, protect our country. But I think it's important to point out other people like Hedy Lamar, who came up with technology that we're using today. Well, that's about all the news we have for us today, but don't go away because we have some more discussion coming up ahead. Uh, you worked some jobs recently, Uncle, didn't you? Some interesting ones, huh? Well, I guess interesting is subjective, but yes. Uh, <laughs> there's certainly a flurry of activity leading up to one of the biggest opportunities for uh, people to voice their like or dislike in the country. <laughs> uh, but yes, yes, it was quite a flurry. And I still have, uh, unrelated to the big day, I still have uh, a few more projects to finish up before the end of the year, and I'm, I'm, I'm quite shocked. <laughs> <laughs> well, audience, you stick around through this next 10-second segue, and you'll be seeing what he's talking about. Stay tuned. So, Uncle, I heard that you've been working on some jobs over the past month. Uh, yeah, this past uh, month, there was a, a flurry of events or, or jobs. Uh, you know, before I start talking about the jobs, I want to make a, a disclosure that uh, these were election-related, and I've been lighting presidential events and rallies since Bush 41. So, so how, many, how many presidents does that make? How many presidents have you lit for? Five. So let's not, I just don't want to get angry emails, you know, <laughs> based on who I've lit last or will be lighting, possibly. Uh, so anyway. You play on both sides. Yeah, I, I, I look at it as it's a tax refund. Hey, you got to eat somehow. Sometimes it's the campaign and sometimes it's, uh, you know, the office of the president. Um, but anyway, um, I started off in October sometime, I believe it was, towards the end. I don't 
remember the exact dates. I didn't bother looking up the exact dates. But anyway, I did Eric Trump in Manchester, and it was in the old Armory, uh, which is a really small venue, low beams, you know, etc. Um, and the person that was in charge of it from the Trump, uh, from the Eric Trump side, uh, she was very nice, and she let us know right up front that this was her second event. But she did show us some some uh, footage of her first event, which was totally different, but done really well. <clears throat> and I pointed out that <clears throat> we can do that, but not this time, because we don't have that lighting package here. And I had nothing to do with what was sent up for a lighting package. So when they cracked the truck open, that's when I saw what I had hmm. to work with. I actually have some questions for that, because when you're hired by a company or a studio, they go over the lighting equipment with you beforehand, correct? They'll often tell you this is what you got to work with, or they'll ask if you want to request certain pieces of equipment. Is that often well, that, the case? It's less often the case than it used to be. Hmm. Uh, on this particular job, I don't know if it was just last minute or I was last minute to be hired on the job, but I had very little info. I had a call time, and I had a location, and I had um, information on who would be speaking. That was really about it. So when wow. I showed up, and they cracked the truck open, um, then I started getting the lowdown of, uh, because the, the jack who drove the truck is, was also the site lead for the equipment rental company. Not the site lead for the event, um, but for setting up gear. So Jack informed me uh, how many decks of staging were going to be set up that were already in-house and what we had for pipe and drape and what I had for lights. So, you know, then you're walking into basically a blank slate and then, you know, both Jack and I had a conversation with the Trump, Eric Trump person, uh, what do you have in mind? And that's when she said, well, I'm going to look toward to you guys because this is my second event. So this is the space. We want to get X amount of people in here. Um, we're going to set up chairs at the social distancing requirements. And then we're going to have standing room. And we want that, you know, also social distancing requirements. So, you know, I've done a, a lot of these types of events. Jack uh, hasn't done as many, but he's done enough to know what the best suggestions would be. So after about a 10 or 15 minute conversation, we decided where the main stage was gonna go. Uh, it was an A-frame roof, so we had to pull it away from the wall a little bit. And it's an old brick wall, and it has some of those uh, modern type accordion doors that fold up to divide a meeting room. So they didn't wanna see those. Um, and, you know, we only had limited amount of pipe and drape to cover the shoot for um, Secret Service to be satisfied that, you know, Eric can get to the stage without being seen. You know, they don't want anybody seen until they set foot on the stage. And then, of course, you know, they don't want the audience to know how many Secret Service guys are behind the curtain. I mean, obviously, you can see who's out front. So you... You had all this information given to you, and how much time did you have to prep before the actual show? Well, fortunately, originally it was going to be a 2 o'clock 
show, and then it got pushed to five. So that gave us enough time to figure it out. Uh, two would have been really hard. So you don't even get a prep day for stuff like this? Not for this one. Do you normally? It depends on who it is and the venue. Wow. So we had, I think, four stage hands, and I had uh, a couple of lights for key available, and then I had lights available to light flags and signage. How, how many people did you have working with you? I had four stage hands, Jack and myself. Is that lower than we'd normally get outside of COVID mode? No, not really for an event like this, um, because it's really not a huge time-consuming. What What is time-consuming is when the person in charge either continues to change their mind or doesn't know where to start. That's what eats up the time. You know, and then you're doing a little bit of show and tell. You know, if we we could put we could put this hang this flag here. I could light it there. We could put this. You know, where do you want? Obviously, the the main signage usually goes directly behind whoever's speaking. But then you got to play with. Okay, we only have so much height because of the the way the roof line is. Uh, do you want to pull the state main stage out more, which means you're going to have less space for the audience? Uh, you know, and you got to think about. They like to have the um, the riser for news media about 40 feet from the front of the main stage. And then you get to figure in the eight foot buffer area that the secret service require. Oh yeah. So then you put bike rack up and then they always want the bike rack covered to make it look good. So you bring bunting or you, you bring, put duvetine on black do first, and then you put the bunting over it. And you know, the bunting just came off another job. And when they wrapped it, it just got, thrown stuffed into a you know a, a, a bag and you pull it out and it's all wrinkled and now she wants that steamed <laughs> which i get but tick tock you know uh whoever is coming to speak is coming to speak at a given time and they're not waiting well you might wait around for them if it gets postponed that's true. I mean, there's been times where you get all set up and then you get word or you get partially set up or mostly set up, you get word that it's been canceled. But that, well, that's fine with me. I get paid the same. At least your pay wasn't canceled. Yeah. <laughs> so so uh, this is a one-day event. I'm curious about this whole thing because obviously there's the, there's the camera department. So when they have camera hired for these types of events, is it typically a DP? Is it a team of a DP and some camera ops? How does that look for these? Well, it, it depends on the event. Um, this, uh, this particular event was uh, media only. So whatever local media, whether it was uh, uh, you know social media that were just shooting stills, or maybe some of them were wanting to shoot some footage. Um, I think we had one or two local TV stations there. So this we didn't expect a huge media blitz, and there wasn't a huge media blitz. Um, so this particular case, it was just media. You know, you get out the word or, you know, the campaign or whoever hired, you know, got Eric to speak, gets the word out that he'll be speaking at this address at this time. Uh, and you're still dealing with Secret Service. You're still dealing with having to get kicked out 
for uh, whatever amount of time it takes them to sweep the building with a dog and personnel. And then you can't come back in until they tell you that it's it's okay to come back in, and then you go through the mags. So this was essentially lit for a general audience. You didn't light this for any specific angle in mind. So tell me a little bit about how you approach lighting a very large area with a universal camera angle in mind. Like if these if these uh, smaller media you know media sources are going to come in and just shoot from wherever. How do you compensate for that? How do you try to make the speaker look good at all angles? Well, really, we we only light from one angle. If like in this particular case, it's one angle. So I would have liked to have had more time and given them because nobody speaks straight out. So if they turn and look towards the audience, I feel that the audience is still as important as the media. So I think the audience still should be able to see them fully lit. But I didn't make the decision on how many lights or, or what kind of lights on this. So I just lit them straight for looking at the uh, media riser. Sure. Because when he turns left or right to speak to the audience, yeah, he's going to go down a little bit. You know, I did utilize some of the house lights. I matched the color temperature of his lights to the house lights um, so that you're not in a dark cave. You know, you still have some light in case something, you know, what if there were a fire or who knows what and people right. had to rush out. You still need to have somebody's you know, got to tie their shoe that ways. Yeah. Or sit down in your chair without missing it. So, uh, in this particular case, there was no cut riser. It was just a straight on media riser. So it was strictly lit straight on. Now, you know, the decision to, to figure out where to light them from, how far back, you know, do you put the light? Because of the the beams, you know, you only have so much room, and then how am I gonna how am I gonna attach it to this beam? Um, so it's always helpful to have a grip truck, sure, on location, because if if just a straight body delivery truck delivered this stuff, and I didn't get to scout it, now I have no options to rig a fixture. Uh, and so fortunately, this particular company that I work with always sends a grip truck to these events. So I just hugged the light. I hung the light straight on as close in as I could because the, the bigger the source, the closer the source, the bigger the source, the softer the source. And I figured Eric probably wasn't going to do powder, which he didn't. So, you know, what you balance there is I can't dim it down too much because I don't know what people are going to be shooting with i doubt they're going to you know some people might still use film it's unlikely but probably not yeah they they still want to they still like to shoot at 50 or 100 asa if possible even though it's digital so i tried to give them you know enough foot candles to uh get a good image regardless of the asa that they want to use can we go into asa a little bit for the audience i'm not sure if everybody would know that off the top of their head uh I mean, it was originally established for the the film speed, and now it's it's still an ASA rating based on the shutter speed or the well, the shutter speed would be part of the ASA or the uh, the f stop, and then you have the shutter speed, which determines how long the shutter is open and how much light is let in. So, with all those three things, um, you know, again, ASA was established for film, 
it was the film speed. So now it's the the it's the same speed setting, but it's for digital. And then you have virtual shutters, or you have electronic shutters, uh, which aren't mechanical anymore in most of the uh, cameras. Uh, so anyway, getting back to ASA, it's basically the speed of the film or digital equivalent. So right, right. You know, the new digital while we cameras, don't use film, we still we still film with digital equipment in a similar method of capturing frames. Yes, it's just it not on. A, a, it, yes, it's just captured electronically versus on a, a celluloid. Right. I do, I just I just wanted to go over that because I heard ASA and I recognized it, but I realized like I wouldn't want you know somebody just to go what the hell is that? <laughs> well, you know, and, and when you're shooting film, you had to you had to have a, if you wanted to change the ASA, you had to literally change the film stock. Right. Now you just change the dial. But there's still a benefit to shooting at 50 or 100 ASA, even in digital, providing you have enough light. Right. Now, would you say that 50 to 100 is typically what people use for film and commercials and all that? Uh, I don't know if that's typical because it pro- it'll also depend on the lens. If they're using a 500 millimeter lens, they might have to up the ASA based on how much lighting how many foot candles are available in that particular space. Um, but typically with presidents, presidential lighting, you do 180 foot candles for a key and you do 90 foot candles for a backlight. So that gives a whole range of users uh, latitude to shoot with, again, different ASAs or at different speeds. You know, if the president, well, for example, it's a, little, it's a little ahead of the story, but um, this happened to be outside. But, for example, when, uh, when Pence came to Portsmouth P- at Pease. You uh, were the, you also know, there. <laughs> I was. And his plane landed about 200 yards out from the stage. And he surprised the Secret Service because he just started running. He so they had the car. Yeah, he came down the stairs from, from the plane. And the Secret Service are ready to get him in the car and drive that distance. And all of a sudden, he just took off running, and you could see them like, "Oh crap!" And they start running, and then all the all the you know the vehicles start driving on either side of him. Uh, you know, it's about two hundred yards, and then he gets to the stage, and he waves for about thirty seconds, and then he begins to speak. Well, amazingly enough, he was not a breath. But anyway, um, you know, so if. If that had been inside or even outside, so they get to change the the shutter speed so that you don't get a blurred Im- blurred image of him running. Right. So, you know, outside obviously it was it was daylight. No, it was overcast, but still you had enough light that you could shoot at a higher shutter rate and and not get any blur. So, if you're inside, I don't know if he would run inside, but you just don't know what's going to happen. So you want to make sure that you have enough light for all situations for all cameras. Um, I don't know if they're still shooting film, but for a while, some of those events were still, still shots were still being done in presidential stuff was still being done in, in film. Not that long ago. Now, maybe they're not now, but they still want the 180 foot candles and 90 foot candles backlight. 
So, so he, I, I lit Trump. I lit Eric Trump similar, just because I didn't know who the media was going to be. So you did, you did Eric, and then you did also did a couple other jobs. So what else did you do over the past month? We know you did Pence so, now. Did Pence? That was at that was an outdoor event in Portsmouth. Yeah. Um, How long was then, that shoot? That was a two day. So I wasn't involved on the loadout. So I wasn't involved in going to the equipment house and going through the order that was already pulled by the people in the house that, you know, you, you place an order, they pull it, and they park it in an area with your job name on it, and then you go through to make sure, uh, mainly to make sure you know where everything is, and you know, because there's going to be lots of bins and boxes and, and hampers and oh, sure. cases. Um, so you just want to sort of touch everything and, and go through it and certain things you want to count to make sure you have the right count um, just for your own mindset. So I didn't do that for Eric. I didn't do that for the VP. But for POTUS, uh, it was a three-day job for me because I went in a day and went through, you know, prep day, went through all the gear um, for lighting. And, you know, because, you know, for those jobs, you're running – you get generators going, and so you need feeder cable, and you need distro, and you not only know, not only need distro for the for the lighting fixtures, you need distro for the sound, you need distro to supply electricity to all of the media, um, and you you have a a large uh, media riser straight back, and then you have a cut riser off to one side, which also need power, and then you have many tables they set up for reporters that are doing social network or newspaper or whatever and you put power at every table so you know they got to charge you the computer they got to charge your cell phone or whatever oh, electronics yeah. they have i mean some of those people so, are probably going to be recording with their phone so yeah and some of them have the recording with you know dat recorders and whatever else um they got to charge their camera batteries uh you know so lots of power distro um Two generators. An underappreciated aspect of uh, film, TV, and commercial production. Distro right there. Right, right. And, of course, you want redundant power. So, in this case, we used a transfer switch, an automatic transfer switch, and, and wired two jennies to that transfer switch um, so that if one, for whatever reason, stopped running, the other one would pick up. Well, the automatic switch, there is a delay. So there's always the possibility, uh, you know, you're outside, we're using HMIs. Sure. HMIs are an arc type fixture. So it's not like turning on a light switch in your house. Uh, if the fixture's already hot, we call it a hot restrike. And they may, on a, they may not restrike when they're hot. Mm. So if, if that generator, if there's enough time between that one generator shutting down and the other one kicking in and giving it enough power to light the fixtures back up if the fixtures actually if the hmis actually are allowed to shut off that could cause some problems with hot restrike it could cause some problems with uh, the ballasts uh, so it is a safety mechanism as far as making sure that you can have continuous power the best you can uh, and fortunately, we didn't have any of that happen. We, 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 have you ever seen a generator go out in any of these events in your career? 
I have. There was years ago, we were doing, I was working on a job. Uh, McCain was up in Portsmouth, uh, not Portsmouth, uh, Peterborough. He was speaking in this small building. I guess it was a theater. Not really. I know there was a stage. I don't recall. It was probably a theater. And uh, <laughs> we, I don't remember if he'd already, I think he'd already done his talk and had left. So some of the crew, we were going to a meal break. And we were leaving one person behind as Jenny Op uh, because the news wanted to do their, you know, the, the news people want to do their, uh, you know, wrap up. Sure. From, from location, live, live. <laughs> and all of a sudden, we're almost to where we're going to eat, and we hear the generator sort of, and then goes off. And we go bolting back. Well, the Jenny op didn't understand what we had told him, and he shut the generator off. Oh. Which meant all the lights went off. <laughs> so it was a couple minutes, and uh, we got that back on, and they got back on air. So that wasn't a spontaneous generator mishap. That was that was user error. <laughs> that was user error. Um, I I'm sure I'm sure there's been times when the generator shut off. Um, I just don't remember any specifics, but it, it definitely happens. So let's go back to the present. Let's talk about lighting for Trump because I imagine that event was a lot more grandiose than Eric's. So oh, well, tell tell us yeah. about how that went down. How long did you have to prepare for that? Were you aware of the equipment you had going in, or was that also told to you on site? Well, that time it was told to me on prep day, because I walk in and I see, you know, they're still pulling some of the gear, but, you know, I had a list. So there I knew, you know, I knew I had a couple 18Ks, a couple 12Ks. And talking with the uh, site lead for the job, he informed me that we had two 60-foot uh, bucket lifts or cherry pickers or whatever you want to call them to mount the lights in the buckets and get them up in the air, uh, you know, to, to light the, the main stage. Uh, so at that particular time or job, you know, I knew ahead of time what I had for fixtures. So what was the, what was the layout like? Well, the layout was, it's almost, I mean, it looks, <laughs> it looks like, a, it looks like a, a cattle corral pen when they're all set up because you got bike rack around the entire perimeter. And then you have <clears throat> another run of bike rack in and around the actual stage itself at an eight foot distance from the stage to allow for the Secret Service. Um, but this was a pretty big event in that I think the, I think the, uh, the media risers were 48 feet. The back two or back three were 48 feet long. And then the front one was 24. And then off of the front, also you have what you call bullnose. What's that? So, What's the bullnose? Bull, well, what bullnose used to be was you had to build a, a form and a frame and, and fill it with, you could fill the bottom with bags of concrete and then you would mix concrete and pour it so that when the camera operator, because it would be for the White House, it would be the White House feed, and it would also it's also for uh, history. Anything that's recorded eventually goes to the Presidential Library for the President and then National Archives. Sure. 
So you don't want to, you, you know, if, you, if you're on the regular riser and someone walks across it, there's bound to be a little movement, although they're pretty solid. But, you know, the bullnose is a solid riser <clears throat> of some flavor. What we do now is we just stack a bunch of decks with no undercarriage and no legs. It's just the actual flat decks. And then you strap them together. And hmm. it's just a solid platform so that's not moving at all it's not moving so what was the media like for the potus i don't imagine it was just a random assortment of local media no i mean it was national and, and probably some world um and then you know there's the satellite uplink truck that's taking the main feed and who knows who that feed you know the, who, the, who knows what the who the campaign's feeding that to um but one interesting note so I had a 9K, and the thought was, okay, you're going to light the door to the plane where the president comes out. So it was a little uncomfortable. I mean, I knew with a – so they also built a 100-foot raised platform with stairs at the end for him to walk up on, and then he walks 100 feet, and he's got audience behind him and bleachers, and then he turns 90 degrees for another – eight feet or 12 feet and then gets up on you know the actual stage which is a couple steps up to where the podium is or the it's technically a lectern but whatever um so same difference anyway i gotta figure out okay you know it's a big empty runway here's the here's the entrance to the walkway the raised walkway which is also staging and all right if i go straight out that's supposed to be where the plane door is. Well, how far out? <laughs> so I actually walked up to a Secret Service guy and I said, I'm only asking this question because I've been asked to light the door of, of the plane where the president walks out. So he's like, all right, well, see that building over there? Just imagine it's right this way about this much or 100 yards or that's where the door is going to be. It's like, oh. Yeah, that's helpful. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to say, I, I pretty much hit the mark, but that was just sheer luck. Because you know, if the plane had landed three or four feet either way, it would have been off. Although at that distance, he would have, you know, he would have had some light on him, but maybe it's not. It's not like it would have been a disaster, but you know, it's not going to be your best work. Yeah. So you know, there's always last-minute things, not just with lighting. Um, it was the morning of the event, whoever was in charge of the event from, uh, Waka decided they wanted carpeting on this deck, this walk, the, you know, for the, for the raised walkway that leads to the stage, because at the time in the morning it had a little dew on it and he was afraid it was going to be a little slippery for the president. So, you know. Then there's a flurry of everybody's on their phone trying to find red carpeting at the right color and the right length. And so the uh, the carpenter on the job. Uh, well, here's the other thing. Now you got to figure out how's the carpenter get to his truck because his truck's parked down the street. Uh, yeah. Because you can't have vehicles. In fact, <laughs> the night before, so the night that we, the night before the event when we were leaving, they had already. The local police had already put up barriers. So I pull out of the parking lot. I look to my left. There's a road. There's a, the road's blocked. 
So the carpenter I happen to be following, and he took a right, so I take a right. And he gets down a ways, and he sees that there's also a barricade there. So he starts turning around, and, you know, the blue lights come on. So I turn around and go back the other way, <laughs> figuring, you know, he's going to explain to this cop, and then the cop's going to come and open up the barricade. So anyway, well, what the cop did was let him out that end, and I'm sitting down at the other end at the other barricade, and here he comes. He comes zipping up. He didn't have his blues going, but he had his spots on. So I put both hands out the window. He walks up. He says, what are you doing? I said, I'm trying to get out of here. He said, how'd you get in here? Typical cop, right? How'd you get in here? <laughs> I wanted to say, if I just got in here, I would know how to get out. <laughs> but I said, these barriers weren't here when I got here. He goes, oh, you're, you're part of the crew. I said, yeah. What else would I be doing here? <laughs> you so built he goes, your just car inside. He said, just drive around it then. I said, well, that's what I was going to do until you zipped up behind me. I figured I probably shouldn't if you're behind me. <laughs> anyway, um, so, you know, at some point it becomes a closed event. Well, especially the day of. So now they want carpeting. And so now, <laughs> now the carpenter's like, all right, how am I going to get my truck? How am I going to get out of this? So there's, there's different layers. So, you know, you got the inner layer and then you got the outer perimeter, you know, the next perimeter and then you got the outer perimeter and God knows if there's another perimeter. <laughs> so he had to find the lead secret service guy. He says, you know, see lead secret service guy, just tell him, you know, gives him his name. And then he's like, no, 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 give me a business card. So he gives him his card and that's what he used to get in and out. But anyway, so he comes back and he doesn't have red oh. because the Home Depot that he went to didn't have red. And he came back with, it was more of a um, underlayment for carpet. It wasn't the typical stuff you put under your home rug. Uh, maybe it was more industrial. I don't know. It almost looked like carpeting itself. And it was black. And we thought, okay, well, let's roll this out. Now, at that point, the staging was dry because the dew had dried. But this is what they wanted. So we roll it out. And, and, and the carpenter, Dave, was telling me how the woman at the Home Depot couldn't figure, she only figures in cubic yards or cubic feet. And he's trying to, he wants linear feet because he knows how long the deck is. And he already knows how wide the material is. He can see it. So anyway, there's a big to do. And, and so finally Dave, the carpenter just walked over and said, I'm just taking, I'm going to buy this roll, whatever's on it. And he bought it and we get it back and we roll it out. And it was perfect. It was Ooh, end to end. Like you cut it for it <laughs> so anyway there's always these little little panic things um that happen you know before the the president shows up and yeah, i doubt many people would think oh you know what's something they definitely did for the event went to home depot right before <laughs> but you got to do what you got to do yeah yeah and you know once there's word that he's about to land it doesn't matter who you are I mean, if you're with a campaign or obviously if you're Secret Service, but, you know, they, they give you a pin for certain people. So I had a pin, but that pin doesn't give me any authority or any power. All it does is I can walk up to a campaign person or a Secret Service person and say, I need to get over there. And they escort you and they right. stay with you while you do whatever, you, you know, which, sure, I get. Uh, but there's, there's always something to do. And, and once that announcement is made... Once they get word that the plane's, you know, five minutes out, that that pin doesn't mean anything. 
Okay. They're just another person in the crowd. As far so as you're at your station, and you just got to hope everything goes right as rain. Right, because at that point, you're not bringing anything else in. You're not bringing anything out. <laughs> right. Well, short of the carpenter coming going out and in, but that was a totally different. First of all, the, the president was probably at that point still a couple hours out, so... You know, and then people were already coming in. You know, people had already gone, stood in line, and gone through the mags and started filing in and and being seated in the bleachers behind and being seated on the main uh, floor where the chairs were set up. Uh, but yeah, that's the biggest difference um, between, say, the Eric Trump and the president, or even uh, the vice president is pretty much the same. Once they get word that they're a few minutes out, there's nothing else that can be done. It's you're either ready. Or you're not. So you you had more equipment, you had more prep time, obviously, but also little to no flexibility once the actual event starts, which must be kind of nerve wracking. I know you've done, you know, so many of these for five presidents, but every time it might be, it must be, you you must grip your seat a little bit <laughs> well, during I mean, the whole I, thing. I'm constantly watching whoever's speaking, you know, um, president, vice president, uh, whatever, sure. whoever's at the. Whoever's standing at the mic. Um, but, for example, you know, when there's a president standing there, I'm watching. We're outside. So, you know, it starts off as overcast and you get a little break in the sun. Um, you know, uh, in this case, I left three of the four ballasts on the ground so that I could I could dim them up or down. Uh, but the danger is, you know, you touch a ballast and whatever reason it just shuts off. So you want to be very selective and very careful and, and has to be extremely necessary to make an adjustment before you want to touch anything. Uh, in this case, one of the ballasts to the 12 to a 12 K was in the bucket of the lift because we didn't have enough head cable to put the ballast on the ground and wow. run the head cable up the arm. That's so funny. I couldn't do anything with that. So I had to guess where to set that. Um, you know, at some, you know, the, the thing is it, this happens pretty much at every event. There's always some young kid, who is working the event? Well, not necessarily, but <laughs> I'm just but feeling feeling important and feeling you know that they have some power. So I'm standing I'm standing next to one of the bullnoses. You know the lights changing. It's getting later in the afternoon. The sun's getting lower. The clouds are changing. You know, coming and going a little bit. Sure. So I'm just trying to watch and make a decision. Am I going to change the lighting? I'm not going to change the lighting. Uh, and. <laughs> And this, and I got remember I got the pin on, and this young kid in an overcoat walks up and he says, uh, "Can you not stand here? This is the media. You're standing right in front of the cameras." And I go, "Well, first of all, I'm not standing in, in front of the lenses. They're above my head. <laughs> Second of all, I got to keep an eye on the lighting. I'm the lighting guy." And then he looks and he sees the pin. He goes, "Oh, I didn't see the pin." So that all could have been avoided. I mean, who else is going to be standing there? I mean, I guess maybe it happens. I, but <laughs> I just love how you acted like you were in front of the lens and you're like, I, I'm not, look, I'm not, I'm not in your shot. <laughs> Sorry. Not, not my first rodeo. I, I, I know where I'm standing. <laughs> so speaking of this, not being your first rodeo now, a lot of the differences must be obvious, but I imagine there was a bit of a learning curve for even you when you started doing live events back for George Bush senior in the eighties. So what are some, 
differences between doing commercial TV, uh, well, commercial TV and film on one side and then live events on the other. What are some big lighting differences or just working, like working as a crew member in general for these types of events that really struck you? Well, I guess the planning ahead for live events, making sure that, for example, if it's a TV show, you might want to have uh, for each position, <clears throat> excuse me, for each position, you might want to have an extra key fixture, backfill, side fill, whatever, you know, sure. um, for each pos- each seat or position, because um, if one goes out and, and you know, people say, oh, but things are LED now. Yeah, they can still go out or they can start, they can start flickering or they can start strobing for whatever reason. You got to kill them and bring up something else. So, you know, before it was because it was a tungsten fixture and you didn't know. No one kept records on the last time you changed the lamp, and not all lamps last the same amount of time based on the usage and how they're stored and, you know, all that thing. So um, I think that was the biggest difference. I mean, if you're shooting a commercial and the light goes out, everybody sees it go out. The director might be irritated and say, cut, um, but I'm not sure we can really blame you. I mean, one of the <laughs> – I was doing this show that ended up being played – uh, sold to uh, – I don't remember one of the one of the subscription uh, services. It was only a couple of years ago. I was doing it at Berkeley Music in Boston using their facility, and uh, it was a comedy show. I don't remember the name of the comic, but he was basically doing um, t- similar comedy as uh, Richard Pryor. Okay. Now you know. The storyline is, and I couldn't verify it or, or either way, that, you know, he was a longtime friend of Richard Pryor and, you know, this was sort of a tribute, whatever. And when we shot it, we didn't know that it was going to be picked up or not. But that was that was what they, the show producers were looking for. So, you know, I ended up having a lot less time to light it than I was told because whoever was building the set took forever (laughs) so i got there at 6 a.m i was told i would have the stage at 10 i got the stage at 6 doors opened at 7 show started at 8 wow so yes we had a couple follow spots that were doing the main you know the main key for the for the for the comedian but i still needed to light the set and the stage uh and at some point, I look up during the show, and I notice the left side of the set is not lit. Not at all. Not at all. So, you know, the show is still going on, so I have to work. I don't know. I'm not that familiar with the, with, the, with the building, so I have to figure out how do I get backstage without walking in front of seven cameras. <laughs> and I do, and then I get back there. And somebody had kicked out some one of his entourage walking around the back of the set, backstage, entered the stage and kicked out one of the uh, power cords powering the light that's lighting the front of the set. Well, it had to become a sleuth there. Yeah, and keep in mind, I mean, yes, I was the gaffer, but I didn't necessarily run. I'm not the one that powered everything up, so I didn't necessarily know that, oh, Okay, yeah, that light is plugged in back there. I mean, we had power running everywhere. But anyway, you know, and, and to watch that air with no light, 
I mean, maybe the viewing audience thought that that was part of the show because he was talking about, you know, the wall. And when he walked over there, it was kind of dark, so it looked more like the wall than if it was lit because I had it lit with color and whatever. So I don't know. Maybe somebody thought that was designed into the program. Well, I'm not sure. After it airs, it's a creative decision. Yeah, well, <laughs> it wasn't. I mean, you know, what What could you do, though? That, that was so out of your hands. The only thing you could do was damage control at that point. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of it. You have to, you know, you have to, um, as Jeff Dan likes to say, you have to uh, set expectation and manage expectation. And, <laughs> you know, I, I, it, was, it was nothing I could have planned or thought would happen. Um, I mean, most of the time when I'm plugging something, I, I, I think about stuff like that, but I don't always know there's going to be somebody back there from his entourage walking around. Seems like you really have to be an expert to gaff one of these events, because not only are you unable to really meddle with a lot of it once the event starts going, but from your examples with Pence and Trump, it seems like you have to do a lot of guesswork and do the very specific art of lighting with just a general notion of 100 yards that way, <laughs> you know, go with that. Yeah, I mean, there's there's always a, a, an opportunity for an oh shit moment. How many years were you gaffing before you did your first live event? Do you think? Was it a while or did you do it pretty pretty quickly? No, I, th- I mean, so I've been doing this about 34 years. I think now... I've been doing TV and live events for maybe less than half of that. So, I mean, primarily when I started out, it was it was film and it was commercial. So, the you know, my introduction to live events was – I don't remember the exactly the first one that I did on my own. But it is a little bit of a nerve-wracking experience, you know. Sure. A little – you know, you, you're – I guess you're still a little on edge and you're still constantly scanning everywhere you can scan to look at lights to see if anything's acting up or has gone out or um, only so that, you know, if during a commercial break, like most, most of them still break for commercials, they, they work that into the show. Um, you might have time to quickly do something or you might not. I mean, it depends. But, but even then, you know, how many problems could you fix with two minutes? Not many. For example, when I was doing the town halls um, for the presidential go-arounds, I did a lot of them up in New Hampshire and uh, for a network. And during the show, you know, somebody always was um, credentialed so they could be out back uh, behind the stage or wherever you'd have to be in case something went out. Sure. Uh, that was a com- so that was a combination. This particular network doesn't won't key anybody with a with an LED. It has to be a conventional fixture. So that means you need dimmer racks. And dimmer racks are electronic. And so you have electronics and you have power. Um, what could possibly go wrong? You know, the dimmer rack tray or or component could overheat and just shut off. I mean, yeah, with, uh, with any electronic, it could just shut off. You know, it could be dusty. It could be warm. The fan may not be cooling it enough, you know, just overheat. So you have to make sure you have one ready to swap, do a hot swap, uh, stuff like that. Um, 
You know, you have spare, if it's, if it's conventional fixtures, you have spare lamps ready to go. You know, if it's a, if it's a Leco and you can, you already have it in the back end so that you just, you don't have to move the fixture. You just swap, literally swap out the, the back end of it with the lamp on it and plug it in. Now that's if you can get to where it's plugged in. Sometimes you can't, so you have to use the cap that you take off and change the lamp and put the cap back on. So you just work with what you got. Yeah, I mean, that's what it comes down to. It's just how you manage crisis. And expectations. <laughs> crisis management and expectations. <laughs> well, you know, this uh, this little discussion highlights one of my favorite parts of this podcast. is just learning the little details that you might not expect. Now, you know, some people might expect, of course, with the time restraints, that can be pretty stressful. And from what we're kind of gathering here, it sounds like they really only take on really experienced gaffers to do this kind of stuff. But the story about, like, the carpet and just the carpenter going to get the carpet and having to get past the barriers, that, I mean, that are so, there's so many layers of issues thrown on top of the job that I, I wouldn't have considered. Like, yeah, duh, they're going to have barriers around the event. So if you need to get to your car, good luck, I guess. you got to go talk to the head Secret Service guy. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because just speaking of that, so the site lead says to me, you know, the night before, said maybe – why don't you look on Google Earth and see if there's some place you can park your car? So, because at some point we're going to need to get lunch. You know, the crew's going to need build, going to need to get lunch. And I said, "Are you crazy? Where could I possibly park my car that I could walk to, get out of the outer perimeter, and talk my way back in? It's not going to happen." <laughs> Better pack that lunch, bud. So, I mean, we we uh, we had a little break during the sweep but you still can't leave through the last perimeter i mean right you know we were allowed to walk to the parking lot where we hung out in and around our cars until the sweep was over and then you go back and you know you go through the line and then you know sometimes you get uh preferential treatment because you're the crew you know if, if if someone from the campaign will come out and vouch for you and bring you through the mags um you don't have to stand in line as long but you know, you still have to do what everybody else has to do. You go through the mags. You get, you get wanded and magged, and then you're then you're okay, then you're okay to go. But then when the president shows up, then you can't leave where you're sitting. So yeah, you can't go very far at all. Yeah, I mean, I you know, as a crew or or, or media, you're allowed to walk around a certain area because it's all bike. You know, you're it's all enclosed. You're right within the bike rack. Um, if you go over the bike rack. You're in trouble. Yeah, you might be in big <laughs> trouble, like yeah. federal trouble. Yeah, even if you don't do anything. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I mean, live events, you know, you just, you can plan, but you just don't know. Well, I hope you guys found that as educational as I did, because, man, live events sound pretty friggin' scary. <laughs> Thankfully, we got all the... The, the experienced people that got to bear that weight and hopefully the newbies like me can just come in as a, you know, crew hand that doesn't well, have the, the responsibility. I, I, I admire the, uh, the, the wedding videographer because you can't say cut, take two. So, <laughs> well, maybe you, know, you can, if you want to lose the job, this is very, this is very similar. I mean, obviously this is on a different scale, but it's still a similar thing. Like you have to be as prepared and the only way you can be prepared is by experiencing it. And, you know, maybe not as the lead person, but experiencing it as a crew member so that you can see, you know, the gaffer or whoever's in charge, how they handle it, how they react, 
what they request up front for, you know, what ifs, backups, right. plan, you know, all that kind of thing. But yeah, it's uh, and whether weirdly, you're shooting a wedding or live TV. And, yeah, and weirdly, you learn that from doing other professional work with television and film where you can't afford to take do a second take. Well, you learn by failure, which is oh, how yeah. you learn pretty much everything. If you're not failing, you're not making decisions. You're not doing. You're not doing. So don't be afraid to fail. Just don't do it live. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't do it when your career's when your career is on the line. Well, remember your last job. This is it. <laughs> well, yeah. Thank you for going over that. I knew that it would be an interesting conversation because not only are those live events, and we haven't really covered that much in the show. We're mostly talking about commercial TV and film, but pretty big events. I mean, the president, the vice president, their entourage dealing with Secret Service. I mean, that's uh, not everyone does that every day. So I thought that would be an interesting little tidbit. Well, hopefully the listeners will uh, will enjoy it. Or else they might have the Secret Service calling them. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today as we dive into the people behind our beloved industry. You can find our show on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, and wherever else you get your podcasts. If you've enjoyed the show, follow us on Twitter at Real Insider News or email us questions at realinsidernews at gmail.com. You can also leave us a review on iTunes. 